Welcome to EM Guidewire, your guide to emergency medicine, brought to you by the residents and faculty from Carolina's Medical Center in Charlotte, North Carolina. Hey gang, Brian Allen with EM Guidewire back with episode two of our Sepsis Awareness Month series. Today, the team will be taking a look at fluid resuscitation, exploring what to give and how to give it. Without further delay, here we go. Hey everybody, hope everybody's having a good day today. We're coming to you live from the J. Lee Garvey Studio in beautiful Charlotte, North Carolina with the EM Guidewire team. This is a special episode, part of our Sepsis Awareness Month that's been going on. Check out our episodes all month for topics related to sepsis. Today, we're going to be talking about fluids and sepsis. My name's Sean Murray. I'm a PGY3, and I'm joined by... Claire Milam, PGY2. Victoria Servant, also PGY2. Our sponsor for this podcast is the Foley Catheter, the only thing that beats pumping your patients full of fluids while watching them come back out, the Foley Catheter. There's been a little bit of controversy surrounding this topic, and I'm not really quite sure why, because it's pretty obvious that the best choice of fluids for resuscitation and sepsis is albumin. albumin. Who said albumin? Get out. Just kidding. There is a place for albumin in very specific situations that we'll touch base on later. Just a little disclaimer here. We're only discussing fluids and fluid resuscitation in the realm of septic patients today. This is not an end-all be-all discussion on fluids and does not apply to all resuscitation scenarios. Let's start by discussing the fluid option that's been around the longest, the one our EMS and nursing colleagues are most likely to reach for when we ask for a liter of fluids, normal saline. Normal saline likes to keep it simple. It's composed of 150 milliequivalents of sodium and 150 milliequivalents of chloride. What's the normal range of serum chloride again? Normal serum chloride is around 96 to 106. Wow, so NS seems to have a significantly higher amount of chloride than our body's serum levels. Very astute observation. This significant difference in chloride levels is no big deal with low volumes of fluid resuscitation, say if you give the patient one to two liters, but can cause huge problems in large volume resuscitation. Are you about to explain that hyperchloremic, hyperkalemic, metabolic acidosis nonsense people have been harping on about? I am indeed, Claire. So listen up, I'll keep this really simple for you. Your kidneys primarily use bicarb and CO2 to regulate your body's pH. The bicarb chloride exchange is one of the major mechanisms for managing pH regulation. Excess serum chloride leads to excess loss of bicarb through the urine. The resulting acidosis from the loss of bicarb produces metabolic acidosis. Serum acidosis causes potassium to shift out of our cells, resulting in hyperkalemia. Hyatrogenically, this worsens both acidosis and hyperkalemia, and it's generally frowned upon when treating septic patients. There's also evidence that hypochloremia can cause direct harm to the kidneys by vasoconstricting renal vessels. All right, fine. I'll give you that those things don't sound good, but at least I'm not giving a patient with a lactic acidosis fluid that contains lactate. Whoa, Dr. Milam, you're starting to sound a little salty over there. Despite its name, lactated ringers does not provide enough lactate to contribute to your patient's lactic acidosis. The contents of lactated ringers are as follows. 130 milliequivalents of sodium, 4 milliequivalents of potassium, 2.7 milliequivalents of calcium, 109 milliequivalents of chloride, and 28 milliequivalents of lactate. Yes, there is lactate in lactated ringers, and a 30 cc per kilogram bolus may temporarily bump your measured lactate up by maybe 0.5. But this is a pretty insignificant increase. Also, remember while we're checking a lactate in the first place, it's a sign of end organ damage, and it doesn't actually cause damage in and of itself. When using lactate to monitor septic patients, remember, we're treating the patient, not the number. 
Proper resuscitation with a fluid that improves organ perfusion without worsening acid base status will ultimately drive down your lactate by treating the underlying problem. Fine, I'll concede to you the lactate argument, but you do realize you just said there's potassium in LR. Didn't you just point out that normal saline causes hyperkalemia, and with LR you're actually infusing potassium into your patients? Claire, everybody knows the amount of potassium in LR isn't enough to change the serum potassium levels in patients, even those with renal failure. In fact, if the patient already has hyperkalemia, then the LR will pull the patient's potassium closer to normal because its concentration will be lower than your patient's serum concentration of potassium. Well, okay, what about the calcium? I'm pretty sure that does have some adverse effects. The presence of calcium means that there are some contraindications for using LR. First, your nurses will be quick to point out that LR is not compatible with some other medications. Ceftriaxone is a common one. It's important to think about when we're talking about sepsis. The way around this is to make sure your patient has good access so you can run your fluids and meds through different lines. This is a great excuse to put it in a central line, which we know you've been itching to do anyway. For sure. The blood bank will also caution you against using LR to reconstitute packed red cells for fear that the calcium in the LR will chelate with the citrate in the PRBCs leading to clot formation. There were a couple of studies in the early 90s that showed no difference in clot formation or flow rates between transfusions reconstituted with LR and those with normal saline. That being said, people may still give you a hard time for using LR in this situation. Another contraindication less likely to come up in the realm of sepsis is elevated ICP. LR is slightly hypotonic, and there is a situation where hypertonic solutions are usually preferred. Now that we've busted some LR myths, let's talk about plasmolite. It's not something we typically stock in the ED. Do either of you have any experience using it for resuscitation? Plasmolite is another balanced crystalloid solution that was developed to resemble, well, plasma. It has pH of 7.4 and is composed of 140 milliequivalent sodium, 5 milliequivalents potassium, 98 milliequivalents chloride, 27 milliequivalents acetate, and 23 milliequivalents of gluconate. So we've got a balanced crystalloid with no calcium. The pH is close to normal physiology. That sounds pretty cheap. Actually, it sounds really expensive. Actually, plasmolite is only slightly more expensive than lactated ringers. Contraindications to plasmolite include metabolic and respiratory alkalosis, and both plasmolite and LR are contraindicated in metformin-induced lactic acidosis. The biggest barrier to use of plasmolite is really just its availability. It's definitely not something we keep stocked in our front rooms. For now, we'll put it in the same category as LR. It's better than normal saline. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Everything you talked about sounds good on paper, but do you have clinical evidence to back up these statements? Actually, there are several studies demonstrating LR superiority. Let's start with the SALT-ED trial that was published in the New England Journal of Medicine in 2018. In this trial, non-critically ill patients in the ED were resuscitated with either normal saline or balanced crystalloid. This isn't Journal Club, and we're encouraging everyone to read this paper themselves, so we'll skip right to the results. Balanced crystalloid was found to have a lower incidence of major adverse kidney events, especially in patients that already had kidney disease. There wasn't a significant difference in ICU or hospital length of stay. However, on average, patients in this trial only received one to two liters of fluid, and it's possible that in larger volume resuscitations, we're likely to see a greater difference between the two. The SMART trial looked at differences in critically ill patients who received either balanced crystalloids or normal saline. Results from this study showed lower rates of death from all causes lower rates of initiation of renal replacement therapy, and lower rates of persistent renal dysfunction in the balanced crystalloid group compared to the NS group. It should be noted that this study did not include patients with a traumatic brain injury. Well, darn. I guess I'm going to have to get on the LR train then, and you're right, I am salty about it. That's a hilarious joke. (laughs) (laughs) Guys, what about albumin? 
coli's are supposed to help fluid stay in the intravascular space, which is exactly where we want it in septic patients. Dude, I might have been late to the LR game, but even I know that the use of albumin and sepsis has not been shown to be beneficial. The ALBIOS, that's A-L-B-I-O-S, trial that came out in 2014 showed a slight benefit in 90-day mortality in patients who received albumin early in the sepsis course. However, septic patients were only a small number of those studied, and this was a non-randomized study. The SAFE trial in 2004 showed no benefit in 28-day outcomes. And furthermore, we can't forget that it comes from human plasma, and its use has more inherent risk than our other fluid products. It's also significantly more expensive. I'm no expert, but as far as I can tell, there's really only three indications for the use of albumin. Patients who have spontaneous bacterial peritonitis, those with hepatorenal syndrome, and following a large volume paracentesis. It's also worth mentioning that albumin is contraindicated in traumatic brain injuries. Fine. I guess if Claire can give up normal saline, I can put away the albumin. Now that we've decided on which fluids to give, LR, let's get even more controversial and discuss how much fluid. How much are you guys giving to septic patients? The official surviving sepsis guidelines recommend that you give a 30 ml per kg bolus for hypotension or for lactate greater than 4. I start with the 30 mg per kg, but after that, if they're still hypotensive, fail to clear their lactate, or have an AKI, I just load them with more fluids. A little water never hurt anybody. Once again, you've been horribly misinformed. A little water may not hurt anyone, but large volumes contribute to the development of some very bad things, including pulmonary edema, ARDS, abdominal compartment syndrome. Fluid overload can actually worsen an AKI. When you try and give your patient a bolus of crystalloid, only one-third or approximately 250 cc's of that bolus actually stays intravascular, which means the majority of your bolus is third spacing somewhere else. Keep that in mind when you're giving your patients just a little water. Don't forget, a lot of our critically ill patients have comorbidities that can be severely exacerbated by IV fluid resuscitation. CHF, ascites, and coagulopathy can all be worsened by excessive administration of fluids. While we're not saying people with sepsis don't need volume, it's important to continuously reassess fluid status by examining your patient frequently throughout fluid administration. If you remember, the average adult's blood volume is about 5 liters. It can give your volume of resuscitation some perspective. Do you really need to replace their entire intravascular volume? Keep in mind, there are some conditions that will require large volume resuscitation due to the underlying pathology. DKA, HHS, and severe pancreatitis are some examples. Okay, but what if my person is still hypotensive after I've given them a couple liters of fluid? Starting early vasopressor therapy is starting to look more and more like the way to go. Not only will it improve blood pressures and therefore organ perfusion, but it also recruits more blood from the venous system into circulation, thereby providing volume and improved oxygen delivery. Check out our episode later this month on guided resuscitation of the septic patient. Early administration of low-dose vasopressors? Does that mean I have to put a central line in every patient? <laughs> I'm just kidding. Even I know that it's safe to run low-dose pressors through a peripheral line. Good. I was worried for a second. All right, guys. Which presser do you typically start with? As I've said here on this podcast before, my go-to is going to be norepinephrine. This is the right answer in most cases. But if you want to know more about vasopressors, our former chief, the great Russell Tregonis, did an EM Guidewire Core Concepts episodes on vasopressors, and it's really worth listening to. But rapid IV fluid administration is an important part of early goal-directed therapy, which has been proven to save lives. Do I, do I really want to go against these recommendations, guys? The Rivers trial in 2001 was the first to suggest that early goal-directed therapy lowers mortality in septic patients. Since that time, there have been at least three trials, including the Arise and Process in 2014 and the Promise trial in 2018, which showed no mortality benefit from early goal-directed therapy. People on both sides of the argument can point out the flaws in all four studies, but what we should take away from the Arise, Process, and Promise trials is that we have to keep building on our management of septic shock, and applying the same blanket therapies to all patients may not be the best answer. 
Totally agree, Sean. And if you're not convinced about the early use of vasopressors, check out the sensor trial that just came out in January of this year. While this trial failed to show a difference in 28-day mortality between patients who received low-dose norepi and those who did not, the norepi group was found to have lower risk of pulmonary edema and were noted to have increased shock control within the first six hours of resuscitation. And be on the lookout for the CLOVERS trial that is underway now that hopes to kind of solve this argument once and for all. Okay, I get it. You can stop throwing studies at me, guys. In summary, when it comes to IV fluid resuscitation, lactated ringers is probably the best choice of fluids in the emergency department. Plasmolite is good, too, if you have it. And consider starting low-dose pressors early in your resuscitation instead of continuously slamming your patients with fluids, which can lead to terrible things like ARDS, abdominal compartment syndrome, renal failure, and hemodilution. Claire, I'm so proud of you. I'm proud of you, too. So proud that I'm going to take you for ice cream, despite being lactose intolerant. Wow, thanks guys. All right, so I think that that pretty much wraps it up on IV fluids and septic shock. I think I really did learn a lot today. Keep following with EM Guidewire all this month while we continue to explore septic shock, and we'll pull out some more recommendations for you all. From the J. Lee Garvey Innovation Studio in Charlotte, North Carolina, this is the CMC EM Guidewire team. Out. Thanks for listening to EM Guidewire. Go! Be awesome today. Seems he out. <laughs> Sorry for our shenanigans. I'm We're not. having fun in Delia. <laughs> <laughs>